The thing is, is most people try to go talk to customers about what they want. They don't have a clue what they want. They know the outcomes they want. They know the context they're in. Value is described by the process of actually making progress. And it's the, the from where they are to where they want to go, that's the definition of value. How we do it is up to us as, as the producers of product or of services. Because they don't, customers don't even know it's possible. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, I am still buzzing from this conversation with Bob Mesta. For those of you who have not come across Bob before, Bob is one of the principal architects of the jobs to be done theory that first came out in the mid 1990s. But as Bob talks about is a concept that has kind of been around before, but jobs to be done, the work that he did with Clayton Christensen and a few others really helped to kind of frame it up in a way that more businesses could apply to product innovation. But as you'll hear us talk about also marketing innovation, Bob has started and sold several startups. He's helped to bring 3,500 innovations to market. Uh, he's a guest lecturer at the Kellogg School at Northwestern. His current company specializes in demand-side innovation, changing buying and consumption behavior to help companies grow. He's the author of a few books, including Demand-Side Sales, which two people in the last two weeks have recommended to me, and I didn't even know it was his book, and so we started, started talking, which was pretty funny. And uh, as the note here in our show notes says, he has lots of work experience in lots of stuff, which is very, very true. As Bob describes himself, he's an engineer who likes to fix and build things. Our conversation touches on many different things. The time just flew in this one, so I really hope you enjoy it. We talk about how to bring new products to market, jobs to be done, both the theory and the application, how to start with something new, the questions to ask, and I love how Bob really makes it applicable to people listening. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Bob Mesta. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. So how is Detroit these days? Uh-huh. I've only been a couple times, but when I was in the agency world in the States, I had Shinola as a client oh, for a while. That's a good, so I did that's a trip a good over brand. with them and they were, it's a great brand and they were, um, I believe, at least from what I saw and they told me, kind of part of this uh, reinvigoration of Detroit. So I'd love to hear how things are going. Yeah. So so Detroit is the 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 thing a lot of people don't understand. Detroit was one of the most wealthy cities from like 1952 to 1962, and it almost like got to the point where it was like too too wealthy and it didn't know what to do. And it 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 actually started to like hoard its cash, and and eventually it just kind of imploded. and so it's 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 is on a honest rebirth. I think two thousand eight, two thousand nine was kind of its its true demise. And then um, it is coming back, and it's lots full of lots of startups and and um, lots of great restaurants. And I mean, it's it's turning into a weekend a place for to come for the weekend, not in the middle of winter, of course, but <laughs> it's uh, really doing well. So uh, and to be honest, I I. I um, for ten years, I worked on an urban. I worked on an urban farm. We got two two hundred acres inside the city and converted it, and helped people coming out of rehab and incarceration, and literally helped them kind of go back to kind of uh, learning 
uh, I'll say, basic uh, kind of work practices, and and then uh, eventually uh, building what we called a uh, food truck you, which is helping people kind of get to uh, a career that's something a little different. So it's been very, very, very interesting. It's, it's, it's. Uh, I'll say, we innovate in Detroit because we have to. <laughs> that's my, that's my short line. Amazing. So, Bob, I think a lot of people listening will have heard of you or will have. Um, been exposed in some way to your work. Like I said, before we press record, I've had two people in the last two weeks recommend your book to me. So you're clearly out there, but for people who maybe haven't come across you and your work before, can you just give a quick background, um, the type of stuff you've done over your career, what you're working on now, just a little bit of an introduction would be great. Yep. So so uh, my mom would say I was an engineer out of the womb. <laughs> I was breaking things by the time I was at least two, if not three. But by the time I got to be five, I started to, uh, um, you know, fix things, learn how to fix things. And ultimately, I'd just been wanting to build things. And so as a kid, we'd go around. Uh, we didn't come from a means background. And so we'd drive around and we'd pick up old big garbage. So I'd pick up old hi-fi sets and stuff. And so I collected speakers. And by the time I was 12, I was making speakers and selling them and things like that. And um, and when I was 18 years old, I was lucky enough to to meet number four over there, who's Dr. Deming. Um, he's the gentleman who went to Japan and uh, kind of helped him rebuild the infrastructure and is the father of the Toyota production system. And I happened to work for Ford at the time. And um, <clears throat> I helped, basically, I was one of the people on the front lines helping to go from uh, 72 months of development time to 36 to, uh, months of development time. And so I learned all these methods and tools along the way. And Worked for Ford for about seven years and then worked for the Department of Defense. But for the most part, the thing that I've been doing and most fascinated in is, is building product. But but out of it, I couldn't make sense of a lot of the marketing research that was done because it was very what I call attribute-based. And it would tell me who I was trying to get to, but not why they wanted my product. And so I uh, partnered with a, a guy by the name of Clayton Christensen, who happens to be mentor number I think uh, three up there, um, and he and and he and I came up with a concept or basically a, a, a theory or a framework called jobs to be done, which is people don't uh, buy products; they hire them to make progress in their life. And from that, it's it's the whole notion that people struggle, and by aiming innovations on where people struggle, it's how I've been able to work on over thirty five hundred different innovations and. A very short lifetime, and and to be honest, I'm now at the point where I I want to be able to share kind of my experiences and help the world kind of innovate because I I just feel like we're we're not geared to do that, and so um and I would say the the other part that uh, people should know is I'm dyslexic, so I had three close head brain injuries before I was seven years old, so I can't read and I can't write, and I was told I should be a baggage handler at the airport and. Those four people poured their knowledge into me to enable me to become what I would consider a successful innovator. And that's kind of where I'm now, where I want to pass that forward. Oh, that's so a fascinating. That's fast enough, but <laughs> that's, that's no, my it's a fascinating every day, story. Yeah, every day. I, so I have, a, this is my seventh startup. It's called the Rewired Group. Um, we're very small. We're five people and, and we help, we do about 25 projects a year and we help people basically do two things. One, bring new products to market. But the second thing we do is we teach them all the skills and capabilities that we have. And so it's a combination of like, we don't have a, we don't have a curtain behind the curtain. We do stuff. It's like everything we do, we do out in the open. And my 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 passion is about uh, teaching and kind of helping people figure this out. Yeah, we um, 
probably a little bit of a shared philosophy here at Rival. We've got a first principle of how we do anything, which is we're trying to work ourselves out of a job as quickly as possible. So it really, what that means is it's a focus on the people. It's a focus on the culture. It's a focus on the capabilities. It's trying to get as much of our experience and expertise out of our collective brains and into the brains of the clients we're working with, because fundamentally that's what they're there for. They're not there for the decks and the meetings and all the stuff that goes around it. Um, By the way, for people... The other part of that, though, is the fact is most people say, well, you don't want to work yourself out of a job. It's like, no, really what I want to do is I want to stop saying the same thing over and over again and start saying new things. And so to do that, I got to get you to say the things that I have to say. And so I can go do some different things. And I've been lucky enough to kind of have a team that's been able to do that. And so the stuff I'm working on is just kind of crazy, like stuff I never even, I don't really have any expertise in, but as you dive into it and use this framework in it, it's like you you get night vision goggles that are kind of amazing. I think it also comes down to short-term, long-term thinking. If we're trying to work ourselves out of a job, you know, maybe some of our engagements end shorter than they would otherwise, but I really believe in the long term. It, it, it's about value, really. It's about, and of course, we're going to get into this, jobs to be oh, done. Yeah. If we can deliver on that need, on that job, if we can be the solution, it's going to do good things for our business in the long term. It's also just a more fun way to go about doing things. In my yeah, that, I think that's, that. by the way, a lot of people miss that. Like, you want work to, like... The notion of work being fun, everybody always used to laugh at me. I'm like, I always ask like, hey, you having fun at work? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, like, well, how do you know? And my thing is, is when when time distorts, either it's, it goes really fast or it goes really slow, typically people are in the flow. And when they do that, the thing is, is they're actually doing the work they should be doing. And so to me, like, that's so, it's one of my passion projects right now is I've we just in the middle of signing a book deal around this, around basically understanding what causes people to leave one company to go to another company and that employees hire companies more than companies hire employees. And so can we understand the progress that employees are trying to make? It's very, very, it's using jobs in the HR space. It's so interesting. So I've jotted down like six things Jeff, that I want to talk about just from your like two minute intro. Uh, so yeah, we're going to start needing to do a longer podcast, but well, one, we, I can always, I always <laughs> like to do a Q and a where after people hear it, if they have questions, like let's come back and do a, let's do a fireside chat. So, Oh, I love that. Uh, maybe, well, you know what? I'm going completely spontaneous here, but if you're up for it, Bob, we can cut, what we can way, do. I, as a, as a podcast, we can cut this out. And my, my thing is, if it's still there, it's still there. <laughs> All right. If it's still there, it's still there. Maybe what we could do is we can say it here, and we can also include it in the show notes, and I'll include it in the, you know, when we push the podcast out. If people have questions for Bob, maybe we can do a bit of a follow-up. Maybe it can be another podcast episode. Maybe we can do it virtually. So, all right, Whatever. we're on. We can work that out. If you're listening and you have a question for Bob, please um, email media at wearerival.com or get in touch. Most of you probably know how to get to get in touch with me. We'll collect those and we'll find some way to get Bob to answer them. Amazing. So uh, I like the spontaneity of this so far. It's great. Um, I do want to, let's see, um, why don't we start with, so for people listening, just a quick note, Bob has a great multiple camera angle setup. So if you want to click over to YouTube, you can see a bit of that. And he mentioned his mentors and he has them pictures on the wall that he's showing as he's talking through them. But why don't we start there? Are there any kind of stories that you can share about working with some of these giants of the business game that really helped to shape who you are as a professional, probably as a person as yeah, well? There's so many. There's so many. Um, 
So I think, first of all, is the way that I was able to uh, connect with Deming is um, I went to, I went, uh, it happened to be around Christmas time, and I happened to go to somebody's house, and I was waiting for them to get there, and I sat down next to what I thought was, uh, was their grandfather. And so I just started asking questions. And it turns out it was Dr. Deming, and it wasn't their grandfather. <laughs> he happened to be a, a visitor at this person's house, and I asked him 52 questions in 22 minutes, and he just turned to me and looked and goes, he was 85 at this time, and he looked at me, he goes, God, you are a curious kid, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he goes, he goes, like, the questions and the speed at which you are thinking is something I would be very interested if you would like to work for me for the summer. This was literally in December, right? And and he's literally thinking about something for the summer, and I'm literally like, sure. I didn't realize it involved me going to Japan and figuring out how to get there as a as a 19-year-old at the time, but at that time. And it was just one of those things where um my mom would always like people around me would say, Oh, you're you know, you're so lucky to have done that. And my thing is, is my mom would always tell me, like, it's not luck. The fact is, is you you knew how to ask those questions and you are curious. And, you know, it was like in her mind, it was destiny that we were supposed to kind of meet. And so my thing is, is that. I, I've, I have this underlying philosophy that we don't randomly meet. There's no way that you and I have randomly come together. And so part of this is to always take the moment to say, like, what is the universe trying to tell me? And, and again, do I know? Not really. But at the same time, I choose to frame it around a very motivational thing that enables me to then make the most of it, right? And so it's those kinds of little stories where... You know, Dr. Dr. Willie Moore, who's, uh, I'll say, number one up there, and she taught me how to, like, think like a molecule, right? And and as we'd have problems on, on the car or uh, different technical problems we look at, it's like, how do you actually manifest yourself and think about it from a physics perspective? And so they all taught me these really, really interesting ways in which to think and to do things, and it complemented who I was, but... But like, like working with Clay Christensen for 27 years, I had four hours a quarter for 27 years with no agenda. And we literally would show up and kind of go like, here's what I'm working on. Here's the questions I have for myself. And here's the question, like, what can I do to help you? And we literally just helped each other for 27 years. It's kind of amazing. There's right? a, yeah. Well, there's a couple things that I want to draw out of that. First of all, so we do this podcast. We also have a newsletter that's all about kind of challenger marketing mindsets and models. And and typically what's in there is, you know, what challenger brands are doing, observations on the space, et cetera. But I actually just finished writing next week's this morning. And I did it a little bit differently because I've done probably, I don't know, 20-ish of these recordings so far. And then also in my last job, I had a CMO podcast as well, but it was focused on the financial services space. And I just, I couldn't ignore the fact that almost every single conversation I have with CMOs, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators, almost every single one brings up the concept of curiosity and how important it's been in their personal and professional development and what they've accomplished in their careers. And so I kind of wrote a whole, ended up being a really, a pretty long, um, you know, perspective on just, I just think it's so interesting that that is the thing that seems to be a bit of a red thread with everyone that's been well, successful. So, so some of the work I'm doing now, you're going to, and again, this might be too detailed, but like, what's so interesting is curiosity is a thing that people, that, that I always say, like, it's what the academics 
uh, kind of observe on the experts doing it. But when you're the expert doing it, you don't say, oh boy, I wish I was more curious. And so part of this is to realize that curiosity is an effect. It's not a cause. And so, so because this is one of my foundational pieces, is everything is grounded in cause and effect. So what makes me curious? Part of it is being humble enough to say, I don't know. And what you have to realize is that what I call the, the A mentality of the kids who all got A's in school, they already knew everything. And the reason why they're less curious is because they know the answers and they've never had to frame the questions. But the g- gift I got by being dyslexic is I always started with a D, maybe even an E, but I, I would at least get a D. And then it would be like, all right, what do I got to do to get better? What, 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 what don't I know? What, what, what am I missing out of this thing? And you start to realize that it's the fact of the humbleness of I don't know is actually at the root of being curious. And most people don't know what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. I just had a thought because, you know, I worked with Gary Vaynerchuk for a long time and he, I don't, I don't know, I don't think he's dyslexic, but he was always a bad student and he's talked a lot about that. And I actually, I can't remember him saying this specifically, but I'm sure that it probably had a similar effect for him for how he's always so curious and willing to dive in to learn something that he doesn't know. But the the one thing that I want to touch on, and I don't, I, th- I think we agree with each other, but my main point in the newsletter was one, it's fascinating to me that almost every single person has said this in somewhat of a different way. But two, I really believe what you talked about with humility, yes. And I actually think that curiosity is a skill that people can develop if they focus on it, right? And so, yes, it's kind of like a survivor bias or whatever. It's like, yes, all these great CMOs and, and, and leaders have curiosity, but what about for people who maybe don't have it as naturally? And so I do think that what gets prioritized gets done. And so if curiosity really is this engine of growth, of challenger mentality, of disrupting things to find new opportunities, I think it is something that you can practice and and build into a routine oh, to be able sure. to be better at it. Right. So so one of the things we talk about when we're when we're innovating around something or creating something new, most people want to talk about what to do. And what I want to start with is what don't we know? And when you start to actually frame what you don't know, it actually changes the whole shape of the project. And most people only budget for what they know. And then they have, and I call that imagined tasks. They imagine what they should be doing, right? And then they get into it and they discover a whole set of stuff they didn't remember or know or whatever. And they have no capacity now to do that. And so part of this is when you're innovating, you have to, one, be curious, but you also have to be understanding of how to manage capacity and how to actually figure out things. And so the reality is, like, it's this humbleness to say, like, so... Dr. Taguchi, who was number two up there, he would always say, there is way more unknown than there is known, and don't ever forget it, <laughs> right? That's the crazy part to me. Yeah, and and also, I really like that, and it's already given me something that I'm going to apply and do differently, because tomorrow we have a session to look at our offering and our roadmap, both for services and some of the products that we eventually want to build. And I am definitely starting with, well, what do we do? But I love that question of what don't we know? Because in my mind, that actually leads you 
in a better direction towards, let's say, product market fit, towards focusing on how can you better understand the market that you're trying to serve and the audience yeah. you're trying to reach. So I really like that. So this is the, so this is where, and to be honest, this is and not to kind of throw a wrench into your situation, but one of the things I do is I before I even start a what do we do, I have to start with what are the struggling moments that we're trying to address. Because if we don't start with that, I can build something that can do a whole bunch of things that nobody wants. <laughs> and just because I can do it doesn't mean they want it. And so my, my underlying equation has flipped from, hey, what can I build, what I call the supply side of the world, to the demand side is, what are the struggling moments out there that I want to go address? The thing is, is most people try to go talk to customers about what they want. They don't have a clue what they want. They know the outcomes they want. They know the context they're in. Value is described by the process of actually making progress. And it's the, the from where they are to where they want to go, that's the definition of value. How we do it is up to us as, as the producers of product or of services. Because they don't, customers don't even know it's possible. And so to me, I'm trying to bound their world first because then, to be honest, it's 10 times easier to build a product around it. But if I actually have it wide open of what can I do, I end up over-engineering the crap out of it and having usually very few people want to buy it because it's it's over-engineered. It's like, well, I don't need this and this and this. I only need this little part, right? And so what I've what I learned very early in my career was is I don't want to build the best product. I want to build the product that helps them make progress. And my, my, my example of this is QuickBooks. There isn't anybody who likes QuickBooks. Everybody hates QuickBooks. Right, but the reason why they hate QuickBooks is because nobody wants to be an accountant, <laughs> right? Right, and the the aspect here is that when you look at that product, it's it's literally three times the market share of anybody else. It's eight billion in valuation. They do 150 million in check printing, which they didn't really want to do. But all they do is focus on the small struggling moments of small businesses, and literally say, "How do I help in those moments?" And that's how QuickBooks got it taken or built. And it's, it, it, it still to this day does all those things. And, and they've never lost it. And it's never a product anybody's going to say they love. But at the same time, it literally is helping everybody make progress every day. So I want to keep going down this path, but why don't we take a step back? Let's zoom out for a second. For people who haven't heard of jobs to be done, can you, because I, you know, I, this comes up multiple times a week in conversations that I have, but I would love to hear from you how you define it and describe it. And then let's keep digging in. Right. So, so, so the, 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 where the place that I started or where I got information was people would tell me, basically they give me demographics. They might give me, uh, uh, some kind of market research around, uh, um, attitudes and, and, um, uh, like, you know, kind of consumption and, and these different. But what I, what, what Deming and Taguchi always pushed to me is saying, like, what are the underlying root causes to say today's the day they're going to switch from this supplier to that supplier or this product to that product? And if we can understand those root causes, that's what's going on. So jobs is really about understanding what, what I call four essential forces that play on somebody to make progress. One is a push of the situation which is this whole aspect of, of the context you're in. Like, we're almost creatures of habit, and we're going to keep doing what we've been doing unless we struggle. And so it's that struggling moment. And part of it could be seeing a better way. Part of it is, is that the current way doesn't really work as well anymore. But without uh, the space in the brain 
to, 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 to create a space in the brain that nobody can actually see or even advertising because they just assume they know what they want to do. And so that's the first part of this. So we want to understand the push of what causes people to say, boy, I got to look at something new. The second part, though, is that most people try to talk to customers about what's going, you know, what they want. And what, what I learned was, is I don't want to talk about how to satisfy them. I want to talk about what does satisfaction look like? So what are the outcomes that they get from the product or service? And so part of it is, I want to be able to grow the business. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Does that grow? You know, you have to unpack a lot of it. But, but part of this is digging deep. And so the, the, the methodology itself is not built on traditional market research. It's actually built on criminal and intelligence interrogation. Because most people lie to themselves and lie, and lie by omission. And so part of this is being able to dig past their, what I call the pablum language, and past the fantasy and, and nightmare language to the causation language. Like, what are they really trying to do and why now? And once you understand that, that's where we actually then can kind of hone in. And so um, I'm, I'm taking a class right now on complexity sciences, and they talk about the starting point. And my thing is, is value is determined not by the outcome you want, but the starting point you have and the outcome you desire. It's the vector that actually causes you to create value. And so part of this is because if I start at a different starting point, I'm going to value you differently than if I start at, the, I'll say, the worst starting point. And so this is where um, it's really helped. So I don't, I don't know if that answered all your question, but the, that's, yeah, no. uh, that's my best attempt. I think that's great. And I'll add a little bit of context based on my experience with Jobs to be Done. So I mentioned before we um, hit record, I came across Jobs to be Done when I was at 11FS. So a consulting firm, essentially, but building digital propositions, building product for banks. And um, we had a fantastic practice and a leader within that practice who I think you know, Ryan Gardner, who uh, I think you did an event with him at some point while I was there. But um, he and his team were just brilliant at applying the jobs to be done framework to how we built product at 11FS. And so it was everything that you talked about, and there's a whole framework and methodology, but essentially, you know, the simple way that I understood it without, you know, getting into understanding all the nuances of it in the way that you do or Ryan does was you're solving for the needs that people have. People hire a product or a service to solve a need in their world. They don't, it's the whole, and I don't know if this came from you all or it came from someone else, but people want a quarter inch drill on the wall. They don't want a quarter that's inch right. drill, that type that's, of thing. Yeah, that's right. That's Ted Levitt. So Ted Levitt would say the 1950s Harvard marketing professor. So this isn't really new, if you will. What I did is I just, I made it very operational, right? But it's like, like you said, people don't want a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole. And the way I would say it is, you know, I've, I learned something called the five whys. Why do you want a drill? I want a hole. Why do I want a hole? I want a plug. Why do you want a plug? I want a lamp. Why do you want a lamp? It's so I can read better. You know what? I'm not going to get you a drill. I'm going to go figure out how to build the Kindle. <laughs> and so it's this notion of taking a step back out of like the myopic part of the product and understanding how we fit into people's lives. And and the the interesting part is if we talk about our product to people, we think the product is at the center of the plate. But nine times out of ten, our product is merely a small piece of the solution of the progress they're trying to make, and it's a set of things to do as opposed to just one thing. So, one of the things I did in the uh, mid early early two thousand or mid two thousands two thousand ten, I basically built houses. And what I realized is, as much as I was a builder, 
from a customer perspective, my job is I was a mover. I was a mover to move them from the old house to the new house. And so we ended up, you know, including moving services and storage and like all these other aspects. That ha- and we, to be honest, we fixed up their old house. So because people who couldn't buy our houses could buy their houses. So I did a, a thousand new homes. I did 500 used homes by reframing the whole business, not to say we're a builder, but we're, a, we're helping people move on, move up and build a better life. And that was our tagline, and that's what. So then we were able to build relationships and partnerships, and you know all these different things that that helped people make that progress, and it made it very frictionless. So that's a really good segue into what I wanted to ask you next. So a lot of the research and a lot of the application, you know, you even mentioned with the work that you're doing now, helping companies bring new products to market. A lot of it is more focused on the product innovation side of things. But actually, I say all the time when people say, "Hey, what?" you know, what marketing book do you recommend I read first? I always say competing against luck. And there's, of course, some conversation around brand in that book, but it all comes down to value. If you can come up with a product, service, or a brand that adds more value than the other solutions out there, your business is going to grow. So what I want to ask you is how, so for the marketers list, I think this conversation is relevant to anybody, but for the marketers listening, how do you best apply the jobs to be done framework methodology and everything you've learned to building a brand and go to market strategy? So, so this is, this is where, uh, again, we might hear the click of like, I'm an old guy. So it'd be the click of the radio being turned off, but, but my underlying frame around a brand is a brand is an effect. It's not a cause. The brand doesn't cause me to build uh, to buy something. It reminds me, but at the same time, the fact is, is like in, it, at some point, it's the set of experiences and the the struggling moment I have. It becomes the shorthand to remind me that I need this product or that this product can fit into my life. But ultimately, the brands don't do the job. The products or the services do the job, and the brand is the shorthand. And it's 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 almost attached to the to the habit part of it, which is once I find something that works, I'm going to continue to buy it over and over and over again, right? And so part of this is to realize, like, at some point, I feel like we're over-managing the brand and under-managing the experiences that create the brand. And so part of this is to really understand kind of, like, in some cases, causing something somebody to struggle actually is helpful as opposed to trying to make it too easy, right? So for example... The, the more I actually, so, so like at Basecamp, right? Uh, so we work with Basecamp a lot. One of the things we actually did is we actually helped people, instead of giving them a free trial, what we did is we actually said, no, we're going to give you Basecamp personal, which is use Basecamp for something personal in your life, uh, getting married, uh, building an addition, buying a house, going on a trip, whatever, right? And out of that, right, understand how it works so then you can pull it into your your work world. And what we realized is when we offered it as a free trial, the, the problem was is that people would never pour enough into it to actually understand how it worked. <laughs> and so this is the thing where at some point it's the experiences we have to create that create the value that then get compacted into the brand. The brand is like a kernel that's going to pop. And so to be honest, how do we actually manage those experiences? And as a marketer, how do you actually understand? You, to me, you need to be lockstep with the product people because at some point in time, it's not just who, right? Marketers are worried about usually who and how do we target, but it's who, when, where, and why. 
am I buying this product? That's the critical aspect of being able to understand. It's like, it's not, it's not like we have a 100,000 potential customers because at some point that might be who, but the fact is, is when, where, and why, there might be only 10,000 people left that are in the moment ready to buy. And so part of this is to realize that time plays a role in all this as well. And so to me, the brand is that, that, that legacy aspect of being able to remember the experiences and associate it so I can buy the, the right thing the next time as well, to build the habit, to build the cash flow, to build the way to go through about it. And so that, that's one side of it. Does, um, the second side of it is... Sorry, can so I... So I'll stop there. Sorry, yeah, because yeah, I just want to jump in and, and get your thoughts on this real quick, because I, I think that the brand is part of the experience, right? It, it could either be the retail experience of actually purchasing something, or it could be just the association that you have with it. And maybe you're saying the same thing in terms of how it reminds you or brings you back to the value of the product. But for example, if you put on a pair of Nikes versus Skechers, you're probably going to feel differently. And it has nothing to do with actually how the shoes are built. It has to do with the brand that's on them. Same thing with BMW versus Honda, or you could go in so many different directions with that. So because we're so emotional and not always rational with how we make decisions, I think the brand actually plays a big role in how we experience products and services. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But I think the fact is, is in some cases, uh, like some people will say, well, I don't deserve a BMW yet, and so I need a, I need a, I need a, uh, you know, a, a Honda. And so part of this is to realize, like, the brand becomes part of the consideration set, but it's not the underlying reason. And so it's it becomes what we would call a hiring and firing criteria of like, well, you know, do I want do I want this car? It's like, well, you know, it's it's a good car, but it's like doesn't have great quality, right? And that's the brand association with it, but it's the poor quality that causes it for the brand to go down, not the brand is a bad brand, right? And so it's it's to realize that it's a shorthand for a lot of things and you have to be able to understand where and when does the brand come into play when they're making these decisions. And, and what you start to realize is when you see the, 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 the choice set as a process and understand that in a lot of cases it might be somebody referring you to the brand, right? It's the referrer that actually has more credibility that's putting their equity into the brand. So if you recommend to me BMW, and I know you really well, then you're pouring your brand equity into BMW, and I'll be like, oh, I should buy it because Eric likes it, right? But part of this is to understand the mechanisms of how brand works. And so this is, this is one of those things is, it, and, and what I would say is a, a lot of times we, we end up over- biasing what the role the brand has. And what you look at is when people actually purchase, in some cases, like, I'm going to go BMW first, because this is what I, for me, I would go Porsche first, but but I would go them, and then I have to eliminate to move to something else. And so it's it becomes part of the process to choose, but it doesn't actually, it's not the underlying energy to drive me to buy. Mm. If that makes sense. Interesting. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, sorry, I cut right? you off. So it's, again, I, I preface this whole thing by starting with, a, I'm an engineer. And so I'm not a word person. And most brands are about associations and words and emotions. And what I would say is, my thing is the emotions come first. And the brand, the, the job the brand can do for me comes after I have the emotions. Mm-hmm. And you were going to say a, a second thing 
a um, couple of minutes ago I, before I, I think, cut you off. I, I think the second the second part of this is that that is a lot that the that brand brands. Um, so I wrote a book called Demand Side Sales, and one of the reasons why I bought uh, built it is like I had gone and got my MBA, and I realized like having done seven startups that the hardest part of anything I ever did was selling. And I kept going, like, why are there no sales professors in business school, right? And it's like, and you start to realize, like, it's pretty hard to do the sales part of it. And they would say, well, it's all about product. And it turns out that in 1985, there, before 1985, there were sales professors and then there were marketing professors. But the moment that marketing basically got brand equity, which was both an expense and a balance sheet item, it literally almost all the all the professor all the sales professors went away. And so part of this is to realize that that at some point sales is still the hardest part of any organization and that people separate sales and marketing as different organ different peop, different organizations because they have different functions. But from the customer perspective, they're actually still one. And so one of the things I keep preaching is that this is why you know our friend Derek and Derek Sutton and uh, Kyle Bassey, like they are connected so close at the hip on how they actually do auto books and how they go to market because they realize they can't work. Neither one can be successful without each other, but they're not pointing the finger at each other like, oh, you gave me crappy leads or you're not converting these leads. And we end up creating so much friction inside the organization. So to me, the aspect here is getting marketing and, and sales aligned on the progress that their customers are trying to make and the role that marketing plays and the role that sales plays to do that. It's one of the things that I see challenger businesses. So they can be startup scale-ups, but they could also be bigger businesses that are just able to continuously grow quickly. You know, every business can be a challenger. It's how you think and act and grow. It's one of the biggest things that I see them do differently is the integration between the different functions, particularly sales and marketing if it's a B2B business, because you know that's the type of world that we play in. Um, and a, a lot of it comes down to the people as much as it does the process or the technology or the systems that you have. It's how compatible are the people and how do you as a leader set them up to prioritize that type of collaboration. But sales and marketing are two sides of the growth coin. You need to have both of them working very closely together and it gives you a huge advantage if you do. Well, the, the, the hard part comes when I call so it. So I have a new book coming out called Learning to Build. And it talks about these five skills that entrepreneurs and innovators have. And one of them is called trade-offs. And they, they, they actually know how to look at a situation and make the trade-off to say, nope, we're going to actually not make it perfect like QuickBooks, but we're going to actually make it easier to do this. And so it's one of those things where it's like, like I always talk about, like, I want to design a product for the complaints. I actually want to design the complaints that I want to happen. What I mean by that, for example, when I do a workshop, the number one thing I always do is it has to be like when it's in person, it has to be 60 degrees in the room. It's cold. Number one complaint I get, it's cold. <laughs> I don't get anybody telling me the font on page seven is different than the font on page 20. I don't get anybody say there's a misspelling. Like at, universally, I get, you know what? It's cold. And my whole thing is, is they never blame themselves. And at the same time, the fact is, is at some point, we will always run around and fix the things people complain about, but we always want, like people have to complain about something. And so it turns out that there's a lot of times there's busy work we do that doesn't have any impact on value. So I'm curious, in your experience working with all of these different businesses uh, on new products, innovation, 
What are some of the recommendations that you have for people listening? If they want to get started, getting started with this, is it going to read something? Is it doing one thing differently next week? How do you take all this theory and package it up into some actions that people can actually apply? So there, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some framework around it. And so my thing is, is you can just search jobs to be done and there'll be stuff that comes up. But for me, it really gets back to one really important or two important things. One is learning to actually listen. What do people truly mean? And what you start to realize is a lot of times they'll say, oh yeah, well, we just need it to be easier. And we people move on. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second. What do you mean by easier? And next thing you know, it's a 15-minute conversation that there's actually five different dimensions of easier, not one. And so part of this is to actually take the time to understand what people mean. The second is don't spend, don't, don't, don't think you're smart enough to have all the questions. I only ask the next question when I have the answer to the previous question. And so the thing that drives most of my clients crazy is they're like, well, what's the discussion guide you're going to have? I'm like, no idea. What do you mean you don't know? I'm like, I'm going to use this framework of the forces of progress, and I'm going to use the timeline, and I'm going to go like, what in the world caused them to say today's the day they need a new mattress or they're buying you know, a new marketing agency, whatever. And when you use the frame and ask the questions, you start to realize it's like, oh, we were growing way faster than we were. And you know, like it's there's certain contextual things and outcome things that then caught that that enabled them to make this choice. And so part of this is learning those things. And so the first thing to me is one, talk to your customers. Two is assume you actually don't know half of the story or more. Like you might think you know why they bought, but I can almost guarantee you don't know why they bought. Right? And, and learning to listen and to ask better questions is at the core, to your point of earlier, is, is curiosity. But the thing is, you have to be humble enough to realize you actually don't know why they bought. So I, I keep going back to competing against luck because that's probably where I've, that's what I've, I've kind of gotten into the most when it comes to jobs to be done. But I, I've read it once and I've listened to it on um, audiobook twice. And I love it on audiobook in particular because those kind of case studies, I remember one in particular where someone was interviewing somebody about how they bought a mattress at Costco. That's me. That, that was me. you. So that's okay. me. Amazing. Brian, Brian Walker. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the milkshake man. <laughs> okay. So I, my kids call me the milk because I did the milkshake study with, uh, with Clay. And then uh, the mattress interview is with a friend of mine, Brian Walker. Uh, he wasn't a, he was literally a, uh, somebody out of the audience we pulled and said, who bought something? He said he bought a mattress. And then it's how we usually start a, a, a workshop is to just like start with like, let's pull somebody out of the audience and understand how they bought something. Yeah, but it was fascinating and, and to that, me that, because I, to what you said of most people move on, I could feel myself as I was listening to the case study being like, all right, well, he said that next question, but then you asked like three or four follow-up questions to actually get to the root of each of those things. I thought it was really, really interesting. Well, and, and you, I think the thing, the, the thing it says like I, a total impulse buy of buying a mattress, right? And it's like, oh, okay, like in and in the marketer's world, impulse buy is like like a standard concept. And for me, an impulse buy is is that's just not true. Nothing is an impulse. It, you might not have planned to buy it, which makes you call do it. But when you actually then the net, my follow up question in the in, in the book was, so how long haven't you been able to sleep? He goes, oh, that's been two years. So is it really impulsive? You haven't been able to sleep for two years and you've been drinking scotch and you've been working out late and you've been doing all these other things? No, it's like you did. You just went to Costco on a Saturday and realized like I didn't plan on buying a mattress, but the moment my wife basically said, eh, if you need it, like we're, and oh, by the way, I had this other thing coming up. It's like, 
It's those three things together. So this is where most people think about it as being one thing that causes people to topple, and it's not. It's sets of things. It's who, when, where, and why that come together that make people do this. So Bob, we're unfortunately out of time and hopefully people send through questions so that we can do a follow-up. But before I let you go, I'm very curious to hear just a minute or two on the research you've been doing around why people leave companies and join companies. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that yeah, for yeah. a bit? So I've been working with uh, Ethan Bernstein and, and um, Michael Horn and Catherine Thompson on this. And, and it's almost been two years of just interviewing what causes somebody to leave, you know, basically from one uh, one company to another company or leave from one position to another. And we did it at all levels of, you know, somebody who was at a law firm and became a prosecutor and somebody who basically went from Chipotle to basically Amazon and just all different levels. And we're understanding the causal mechanisms of what's going on. And it enables us to start to see two things. One is that... Employees hire companies as much, if not more, than companies hire employees, meaning I'm going to actually choose to go to a new company because wherever I'm at, I'm not making progress, and I have a new definition of progress, and so how do I figure that out? And so we're building a whole process around helping. So I've I've coached over a 1,000 people right now in in, in building this this, uh, process to help people figure out what are they good at? What gives them energy? What sucks their energy? And how do we actually then shape the kind of work you really want to do that you'll love to do, right? The other part, though, is that when you go to the employer side of the world, is you realize the way we've been doing job descriptions is literally to create, like, how do we get one person to be able to do as much as possible around this one thing? And what we don't realize is there's what I would say is the physics involved. Like, I can't find somebody who's strategic and creative and out of the box, and detailed and execution and project management. Like, like, like it's a wish that they put in the job description. And in the end, there's like nobody who fits and they defy one way or the other. And so part of this is to realize like to find that one person, they're almost defining unicorns that they have to go find to fill these positions as opposed to redefining the work by which skill sets people truly have. And so it's this really interesting aspect of helping HR or helping, if you will, the hiring manager redefine the work and helping people realize, like most people wait till their job sucks so bad they leave and then they go take the first job that they get. And it usually is 99% of the time the same job they had before, but worse. And they just end up going over and over again. So part of this is helping people realize, like, how do we help people realize what they really want to do and what are the trade-offs they're willing to make to get there? It's fascinating, and I think everybody yeah. listening can the, probably the craziest myself, the craziest thing that I the craziest thing that I've learned is that when people talk about money, almost everybody will say they want more money, but why they want more money is very different. Some people want more money because they want respect. Some people want more money because they now have responsibilities that they have to meet, and so you start to realize that money is not the reason. It's these other things wrapped around it that help them do it. So like, this is where people will say like, I need more money because I got to pay for childcare. But if I actually get a job with childcare, I don't actually need more money, <laughs> right? And so you start to realize like, how do we actually frame these trade-offs in the right way? And so it's, it's the, the line I always use is, most people have taken way more time to study for the SAT or the ACT than they have to study for their next job. Hmm. It's true. Right? It's true. So that's... That's that's the next uh, next thing I'm working on. When is that coming out? That research. 
probably not till 2023. I have a book coming out. So I have Demand Side Sales that came out uh, uh, last year. This year I have a book called um, um, Learning to Build. That's coming out in uh, March, I think. And then this one, we're just, we just did the book proposal, so it probably won't come out till 2023. Cool. Well, I'll look out for it. And I got to go read Demand Side Sales after having a few people oh, tell I, me I would about love that. to hear your take on it <laughs> when you're done. Great. Well, Bob, Maybe we start the next session that way. Thank <laughs> Perfect. you. Thank you so much for joining. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. For people who want to get in touch, get connected, find out more about what you're up to, where should they find you? Uh, LinkedIn's the best place. Just uh, you know, we have a, a website, the Rewired Group, and but my thing is, is is the best place is LinkedIn, and just message me. Um, my thing is, is is willing to answer questions. I always say, like, I'm willing to help people an hour at a time. But when you want more time, then we have to do a project. But otherwise, if I can help, I'm I'm trying to help as many people as I can. Amazing. Well, it's great to meet you. And thank you so much for thank coming you, Mark. on. Thanks for your time. Take care. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.